Hello and welcome to QPod, QIC's Investor Insights podcast series. I'm Craig Valenzuela, Managing Director for Global Business Development, and each week we have our listeners to take 10 and get the latest economic insights from our in-house economics team. Good morning to our Chief Economist, Dr. Matthew Peter. Morning, Craig. Matthew, as a Brisbane headquartered fund manager, we can't go past Brisbane being named the Olympics host city for 2032. But Matthew, will the world descending on Brisbane provide Queensland and Australia a much needed GDP boost? Let me say first, Craig, what a great outcome for Queensland and Australia. We'll be the only the second country in the post-war era, that is, uh, to be a three-time host of the Olympics. And we're, we're just beaten out, Craig, by the uh, the uh, Yanks who are going to uh, host the uh, 2028 Olympics in LA and that'll give them three first. It's another show, Craig, by the international community of the confidence they have in Australia, especially in this time of uncertainty. Will it provide an economic boost? Well, the evidence, unfortunately, isn't overwhelmingly favourable. The 1996 Atlantic Atlanta Games, I don't know if you remember, Craig, the Coca-Cola Games, uh, they were the last games to uh, return a profit. A key academic study of uh, the Sydney Olympics produced by the Centre of Policy Studies down in Victoria estimated that, in fact, the Sydney Olympics lost $2.1 billion. However, uh, the other hand, a study released recently in, in June this year, in fact, by KPMG estimated that the total economic benefit of the Games uh, would be $8.1 billion for Queensland and $17.6 billion for Australia. And that would uh, result in 91.6 thousand jobs created in Queensland and 123,000 jobs uh, created in Australia. Okay, so some potentially mixed uh, forecasts there, Matthew. So you mentioned the Sydney Olympics. Um, so why should we expect Brisbane then to be different? Well, they, there are some key differences between Brisbane now and into 2032 and Sydney back in 2000, the most obvious being that we currently have a pandemic uh, and the prospect of an Olympics should be a confidence booster as well as supplying infrastructure jobs, particularly transport and tourism, to assist with the recovery out of COVID. Uh, And that recovery, I think, will be a a long haul, a decade-long process. The other difference is most sporting infrastructure already exists here in Queensland, and it's that sporting infrastructure that tends to have the low economic payoff in terms of uh, ongoing benefits. Benefits. There's greater IOC funding this time around. Uh, and finally, the Brisbane Games is the first Games in memory that has not been held in a capital or major city. This means that impressions of Brisbane are less well formed by the rest of the world than, say, you know, the impressions that uh, the world already had of Tokyo or LA or or even Sydney in that case. And I think this gives us a greater opportunity to shape the global perception of Queensland and to present another side of Australia that can can further attract tourists and uh, trade. Matthew, I want to get into that infrastructure element just in a little moment. But before we get into that, this year's Olympics host city, Tokyo, is dealing with 2,000 COVID cases a day as we lead into the opening ceremony. And as we consider the impact of the virus, Matthew, we've experienced some very clear economic phases, starting with the early deflationary fears before we then pivoted to the more recent inflation outbreak fears. Where are we now? Yes, Craig, that's right. The initial impact of the pandemic was to cause lockdowns and a huge plummet in global economic activity and the collapsing prices, as you say, the recession deflation uh, phase. And that was the dominant uh, phase or risk 
over 2020. The rollout of the vaccines and the opening up of economies over the first half of 2020, combined with the huge fiscal stimulus and ongoing loose monetary policy, pushed us into a phase more associated, as you said, with inflation fears and the risk of uh, overheating economies. But since June, we've entered a new phase with the spread of the Delta variant. Uh, it's resulting in a slowdown in economic reopening in North America and Europe and lockdowns in countries like Australia that still have low vaccination rates. There are also signs that it's prolonging the disruption to supply chains, leading to uh, pricing pressures due to shortages, uh, especially supply out of East Asia that, like Australia remains largely unvaccinated, uh, causing these uh, global supply chain disruptions. Now, the risk of these supply shortages and hence the price pressure that flows from that uh, becoming more persistent than first thought is leading to potentially and I say potentially because it's not there yet, but potentially a stagflationary environment. That is a, a phase of both rising prices on the one hand and falling economic activity on the other. Yeah, Matthew, there'll be people just quickly jumping into their economic textbooks to look up at stagflation. It's been a while. You're listening to Craig Valenzuela and QIC's Take 10 podcast, where our chief economist, Dr. Matthew Peter, is taking us through the economic impacts of the Delta variant that's shaping your investment outlook. Recently, Australia has become critical of the role out of our vaccination program as we watch Europe, the UK and the US almost enjoying herd immunity, Matthew. Are we alone amongst our Asian neighbours in the Australian position? Well, Craig, unfortunately not. Uh, countries in our region have vaccination rates of very low vaccination rates of between just 10 and 20 percent, while, as you say, North America and Europe sit close to uh, that uh, herd immunity level, somewhere between 55 and 65 percent currently heading towards that 70, 75 percent herd immunity Mark. Uh, in our region, there doesn't seem to be a strong bias across the developed and emerging uh, economies. For example, Australia, New Zealand and South Korea, all sort of developed nations, they sit at vaccination rates of around 10%. China, an emerging market at 15%, for example, and Japan, another developed economy, probably at the top of the list in our region at 20% uh, are examples. So Matthew, what's the likely impact then of this disparity between, if I can say, the East and the West? Well, Craig, from a global uh, economic perspective, we must always remember that East Asia is the world's manufacturing hub. Uh, with countries in our region dealing with the Delta strain without a vaccinated population, uh, we either get a slowdown in production because of lockdowns or because those countries' uh, health systems become overwhelmed. And this creates the types of shortages in the global supply chain that we're currently seeing. For example, the lack of production of computer chips out of Asia leads to you know, thousands of Chrysler motor vehicles stranded at US factories as they await uh, the chips that run their onboard computer systems. And we've seen the used car prices go up significantly in the US on the, as a result. You're listening to Craig Valenzuela and QIC's Take 10 podcast, where our chief economist, Dr. Matthew Peter, is taking us through the latest economic impacts of the Delta variant that's shaping your investment outlook. Given the economic phases, Matthew, we summarised earlier, am I therefore right to suggest that neither tightening nor loosening monetary policy will actually have a solution? Yes, that's right, Craig. Monetary policy is 
very ill-equipped to deal with stagflation if indeed we do enter that phase. Uh, if the central bank tightens monetary policy to address to address inflation, that is, if inflation expectations start to climb sharply, then they run the risk of exacerbating the slowdown in economic growth. On the other hand, though, if they loosen monetary policy to stem the sliding growth, they run the risk of exacerbating inflation. And, you know, as you've said, you know, it's been a while since we've had stagflation, but if we look back to the late 70s and 80s, which was our last uh, episode of stagflation, central banks really lurched between easing and then tightening monetary policy, inducing an unanchoring of inflation. Inflation expectations went through the roof, but also a real roller coaster in, in economic activity. And we actually underwent three recessions in a decade during that period. Okay, so then let's get into the actual potential solutions here. With global supply chains therefore likely to impact the economic activity through that supply shock you mentioned, what are the potential forward-looking policy implications? Well, Craig, it's clear that monetary policy will be on the sidelines. It's it's not equipped, as we just said, to, for stagflationary event. Now, current fiscal policy that is to date really concentrated on in- income support to households and businesses, that is a policy that supports demand, leads predominantly to inflationary pressure when faced with supply side constraints. So fiscal policy must pivot to initiatives that encourage greater production or greater capacity in the economy, either through uh, infrastructure spending, which builds out our capacity to produce, or policies that enhance labour productivity, give us more bang for each worker that's uh, that's that's uh, in the workforce. Finally, to alleviate supply chain uh, disruptions, particularly coming out of our region, we must get East Asian and other emerging market countries fully vaccinated. We must, Craig, recognise our economic independencies and help lift fax rates, vaccination rates across the globe. For example, here in Australia, if we don't want to take AstraZeneca, we must make it available, um, the excess doses at least, that we have to our regional neighbours. And don't forget, there are many countries around the world, including the most vaccinated developed economy, the UK, who are heavily relied on on AstraZeneca for their vaccination rates. And there you have it, Matthew, in a way, the Brisbane 2032 Olympics could in fact actually be part of the solution here as well. Matthew, Australia's Matthias Gorman has been recently made Secretary General of the OECD. Should organisations like this play a role in the world coordinating that response? Oh, certainly, Craig. Enormous roles for organisations such as the OECD and the G20. They've got their part to play, but you also got to recognise that they're political organisations and therefore political considerations often trump economic considerations in the deliberations of those uh, of those organizations pardon uh, the pun there matthew <laughs> intentional of course craig uh, i suspect that trade groups uh, such as apec in our region for example that are more acutely aligned by economic ties and hence better understand the joint economic benefits of a more global approach to the vaccine rollout may be uh, also important vehicles perhaps better vehicles to advance policy in this area of uh, of a global vaccination um, approach. Yeah, really, really interesting, Matthew. Thank you for that. Uh, so in summary, the highly contagious Delta strain continues to drive both social and economic change. Is stagflation, as Matthew highlighted, the next economic phase we will endure, having seen off the initial deflationary and recessionary fears early on, only for that loose monetary and fiscal policies then to produce those inflationary fears we've been seeing in the press of late? If so, will monetary policy become ineffective? 
And with the world's economy now relying on those supply chains linked to Southeast Asia's manufacturing sector themselves struggling with COVID, will the world pivot to global herd immunity and integrated fiscal policies? And if so, are those fiscally supported organisations like the UN, the OECD, etc., built to deliver those integrated policies? Or will new trade entities driven by commercial outcomes be better equipped? I'm Craig Valenzuela for QPod. Thank you for listening and have a super weekend.